I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class, but I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me now as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode 152, in which it's my fourth podcast anniversary, and I talk with Ami Sims. And I'm recording this part of this episode on Sunday, March 30th, 2014. Other parts of this episode were previously recorded. I want to say thank you to everybody for listening to this episode and to any number of episodes that you've managed to survive at this point. Welcome to any new listeners and... I hope you stick around for a while. Yes, indeed, it is my fourth podcast anniversary. I am really, really excited about that. I posted my very first episode for this podcast on March 28th, 2010. It is, of course, completely fitting that in order to celebrate my fourth podcast anniversary, I've been able to do my favorite, favorite, favorite thing again, an interview. For anyone who has been listening to my podcast for any length of time, you know I really prefer to hear other people talk more than I like to listen to myself, so I really love doing interviews. And for this episode, I'm particularly excited to be able to share with you a conversation with someone that I've enjoyed from a distance for many years, Ami Sims. Let's give a big happy dance for that one. So I'm just going to give a couple of quick announcements to start us off, and then we'll get right into the conversation. Stick around after my conversation with Ami for just a very brief Sandy update. I do have a lot of listener feedback, so I think I'm going to hold off to um, respond to y'all until my next episode on that one, because otherwise this is going to get really long really fast. So let's start out with the couple of announcements. First of all, thank you to everybody for participating in my 2014 Quilty Resolutions check-in and giveaway and linky party and all of those good things that was going on last week. I need to say a big congratulations to Sally of Paleo Fish Designs. She was the winner of the giveaway. Um, Woohoo, Sally. (laughs) And I have already actually been in touch with Sally and she must have been sitting right on her email because she got back to me right away and she already says she knows what she's going to be using the fat quarters for. So thank you, Sally. And thank you to everybody who joined in for that. It was a lot of fun to read all of your comments. And again, I will be feeding back to that next week. I also just posted my fourth podcast anniversary giveaway blog post. It just went live a few minutes before I'm uh, posting this episode. And there are two big prizes this time. Thank you so much to the Fat Quarter Shop for sponsoring a $30 gift certificate as one of the giveaway items. And also thank you to Craftsy for sponsoring a free Craftsy class. So make sure you go and check out my blog. The giveaway will go until midnight next Saturday night. Perhaps that might be technically Sunday morning here in the Eastern time zone of the United States. I will likely be posting other blog posts during the week, but I'll do the same thing that I did this week and make sure there's always a link to the giveaway um, blog post right at the front of whatever future blog posts I might do this week. So those are the announcements. Are you ready to party? Here we go, my conversation with Ami Sims. 
For any new listeners just tuning in for the first time, I'd mentioned in previous episodes that I was able to take Ami Sims' String Star class at the AQS Quilt Week in Lancaster, Pennsylvania a few weeks ago now, I think maybe three weeks ago. I don't know how long we've been home. Um, I did also have the opportunity to attend her presentation, How Not to Make a Prize-Winning Quilt and Worst Quilt in the World Contest with a Gong Show Twist. Now, I've heard Ami speak before, but this is the first time I'd seen this particular presentation, and I have to say it really did have my friend and I laughing so hard that quite literally we did have tears in our eyes. I was already scheduled to have this interview with Ami prior to going to Lancaster, so I was really looking forward to the chance to follow up with her on a few things that had come up in class and at the presentation. So, with no further delay, here's my conversation with Ami Sims. I would like to say hello and welcome to Ami Sims. Ami, what would you like people to know about you? <laughs> All right, from the start, let's see. Uh, I'm a quilter. The name is Ami, rhymes with salami. It looks like Amy, but that's not my fault. So it's spelled peculiarly, but Ami, salami, you'll remember it that way. Um, and there's there's just one thing I want them to, to remember about me or to know about me. I don't know. Maybe they'll take away something. Maybe I don't even know what it is. So when we're through, we can ask people. So <laughs> what was it that was the best part or the worst part or something like that? I'll ask people. I'll have an evaluation form on the episode. How's that sound? <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm really nervous. <laughs> um, why don't we talk about how did you first get into quilting? Um, I, I did it backwards first. I was an undergraduate at a small liberal arts college in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the name of the college, of course, is Kalamazoo College, and we were required, I think by law, to, oh, wow, that's a phone ringing. I think I'll have the dog answer it. Anyway, we were required to do an undergraduate thesis or do student teaching, and while I was heading towards a teaching certificate, I hadn't gotten far enough along to do student teaching, so I wound up doing an undergraduate thesis in anthropology, and that was with a family in northern Indiana, and they were Amish, and my idea was to sort of show up one day at a barn raising and be very agreeable so that I would be invited back to visit them often or to live with them. I was 19 and stupid at the time, so I really didn't understand too much about the Amish, but... That was my first introduction to them and to quilt making, and I I wound up doing what we call participant observation with that family. Um, I dressed Amish. I tried to learn a little Pennsylvania Dutch. I did basically whatever it is that they were doing at the time, and I hung around like a bad smell. And that gave me an opportunity to see what their life was like by living it, so to speak. So that was my my first introduction really to Amish people and to the world of quilting. Um, We had a quilt at home. I think we had two quilts made by uh, someone my mom knew. And these were made out of old boxer shorts and pajama parts. And they were not anything spectacular, but they were cozy and comfy and they felt good to sleep under. And then I saw this giant trampoline in the Amish home and I had no idea what was going on. And one thing led to another, and they asked if I wanted to quilt on it. Of course, I said yes, wanting them to like me a lot, so of course I could come and stay with them. <laughs> and that was really my first introduction to a real honest-to-goodness quilt. 
So I'm curious, how much did they giggle when you first started quilting? Did did they assume you maybe already knew how to do this, or did they understand that you had never done this before? Um, I think it was sort of half and half. There were about a dozen women around the frame, and they asked if I wanted a symbol. And I said, oh, no, thanks, I don't need one. And that's when they started giggling because they realized immediately that I had no idea what I was doing. Now, mind you, I had some sewing experience because I sewed for the cat. We had a Siamese, and this poor thing let me sew it several outfits, one of which um, I really remember well was a Superman outfit. So I made him a shirt with a big S, and I made him a cape, and he had a hat with holes for his two ears to pop out, and I also made him a tail cozy and um, put it on a cat for the first time, and he took out, like, a bat out of you should excuse me, and there, well, that was the last of the Superman outfit to the cat. But I, I sewed stuff in home ec, and I sewed other things. So I had some experience, but certainly nothing on a quilt. And they were trying to explain to me that this was a running stitch. So I didn't know what that term meant. And that day, uh, without the symbol especially, I wound up poking both fingers, the one underneath where the point of the needle was exiting the quilt and the one on top where I wasn't using a symbol and I was jamming the eye through my flesh. But even so, I thought, this is so much fun. You were willing to work through the pain. (laughs) Well, you know, not knowing any better, I was just really stupid, but um, enthusiastic. (laughs) And, And so how long did it take until you started wearing a thimble? Oh, after that day, I think there was something to that bit. But, you know, I never, first of all, I didn't have one that fit. And, I don't, you know, I didn't have any of the supplies at all. And I thought, well, I didn't need one. And now that I, at that point, I learned, well, yeah, it could kind of be a little helpful. So I'm, I'm a late bloomer, though, in terms of my sewing skills. I worked for many long times doing things the wrong way. And um, I got used to all those wonderfully bad habits. I'm curious, before we move on, are there any extant photos of said cat in said Superman outfit? Oh, I wish. (laughs) I wish. No, I think there may be some very blurry, fuzzy pictures of the cat in partial regalia, but certainly not the whole outfit. We could never assemble it on the cat after the first time. (laughs) He wasn't going to be dumb enough to stand still for that again? (laughs) No, no, poor cat. Um, so are there any ways, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but with that initial experience you had with the Amish quilters, do you still experiencing that, experience that influencing your quilting today? Um, not so much. Um, I, for, for many years, I would make a quilt top and I would drive back to Indiana and show it to my Amish friend. And, and the, this very sweet Amish woman would lie to me, basically, and tell me I was doing such a fantastic job, when, in fact, I was not. But because of her encouragement, I was able to like quilting, and I just kept making one quilt after another. I learned how to hand quilt the, the basics, how to, to machine piece the basics from my Amish friend. But then... As with so many things in quilting, you hang around other quilters and you pick up an awful lot from a lot of different people. So in that regard, that Amish experience was the very beginning and gave me that big push forward. But in terms of what I chose to quilt or how I 
did my stitches or pieced them together. After uh, a while, I just set out and found other quilters just because I wanted to hang around people who liked to do what I was doing. When when I first started, I was the only other quilter besides these Amish ladies that I knew, that I had ever met. So I I had no no basis for comparison. I didn't know what a good quilt looked like other than the ones, the very few, I think I'd only seen maybe two, that the Amish had made. So I was really stupid in terms of knowing what I should be aiming for or knowing how to get there, in fact. So... Um, huge influence at the beginning and that immense support where I felt that I was really doing a very adequate job. It wasn't until I started attending quilt shows that I remember taking my next-door neighbor, and this had to be, oh gosh, um, probably 10 or 12 years after my Amish experience, and we went to the National Quilting Association show. I think it was in Toledo, Ohio, I'm guessing. I can't remember where it was. Somewhere close by. So we drove there. And we saw all these quilts hanging up in this huge gymnasium. And they were they were like above our heads. So you really had to crank your neck back and take a look. And we could not figure out why some of them had ribbons and others of them did not. So we walked up to the, the ladies with the white gloves who we thought had a communicable skin disease. That's why they were wearing the gloves. And I remember walking up to the gals and saying, okay, we're really new quilters, so how come these quilts have ribbons and these over here don't? And this very sweet woman gave us many of the rules of very traditional quilters so that we heard things about Oh, quarter-inch seam allowances and intersections matching and evenly spaced sections of quilt backing and thread that matched and just a litany of things that this pri- these prize winners had accomplished. And I remember Barb and I just looked and very politely absorbed and nodded our heads and we thanked her kindly and then we moved off and hid behind the first full-size quilt we could find and we just laughed our heads off. And it was like, get a life. Are you nuts? They're, they're good enough the way they are. Why do you care about all these rules? And we just, we were flabbergasted at all that went into it and decided to embrace none of it. That's probably one of the better responses. I, I know I visited, um, I went to Houston very early on in my quilt career, and I remember walking away just really depressed that I was never going to be that good. <laughs> Every time I go to Houston, I feel the exact same way. You go to a major show and you see all these things. And and with that that background history where you realize what's good and what could be better, then you feel as big as a grain of sand. And, And you realize there are such tremendous talents out there. But when all is said and done, there is something about quilt making that still captures you whether or not your quilt can be a prize winner. That's not the point of it. In fact, if you were to make quilts only to satisfy quilt judges, I think you'd be very disappointed in the process. And frankly, if you don't like the process, you should be doing something else, like, I don't know, cleaning your oven, waxing the floor, something that makes you feel better. Because quilting takes a long time, and it costs a fair penny to buy supplies and books and patterns. So if you're not having a good job, are a good fun time at it. You should find something else to do. 
Okay, we're going to come back to that concept later um, because okay. we've got some things I want to talk about in a little bit um, that that will follow up on that. But first, I'd like to go back. Your your early professional years were as a teacher. Um, according mm-hmm. to your website, you taught second grade and senior citizens. Um, how do you compare Not at the, the same time? <laughs> although that would be a whole lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you compare that to being a quilt teacher? Is there really a whole lot of difference between a room of second graders and a room of quilters? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's interesting. There, there were stronger connections, I think, between the second graders and the senior citizens. Um, people still were fighting over who sat where, and she touched me, and that kind of stuff. But in terms of relating the the second grade classroom atmosphere, um. It, I do much prefer teaching adults. They get my humor. They laugh at my jokes. The second graders just kind of stared at me. <laughs> okay, I've used myself, but I, I was hoping for a deeper connection there. In fact, I do a class on applique where I ask permission of the adults in my classes to treat them like second graders. So I give instructions, and as soon as somebody turns around and dives for a tote bag to get whatever it is I'm talking about out of their bag, I go, ah, 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 not there. You have to look at me with your hands clasped in your lap. And, you know, we make a big deal about it, but it's it's difficult to get a lot of the information across if somebody's digging around in their tote bag because I know they're not focused on what I'm saying. So it's a good technique for me to use with a little humor to engage them and, and have them focus their energy on me. And then once I'm done explaining, then they can go and, and do what I've asked them to do or get what, what they need to do. But um, the second grade training helps me take a skill and break it down into lots of small, easily digestible pieces so that I, I can give someone explanations um, in small little bites so that it doesn't seem quite so overwhelming. And with second graders, you learn to say things five and six times anyway slightly differently so the child who's listening to you and is totally confused can get it after the third or fourth time, but nobody else in the class realizes you're saying the same thing over and over again just using different words. So that talent, that has been a huge help uh, when teaching adults because when you have people coming to class, they, they're come from, coming from all walks of life, all skill levels, all different kinds of emotional feelings. Is it a good day for them, a bad day? It, it's totally individual, and you have no idea what's going on in someone's head when they walk in that door. But you want to reach them, and you want them to succeed, and you, you have to be mindful of that. Uh, just because I'm having a good time and, and I'm up doesn't mean everybody in the room is. And, and you try and, and be mindful of where everyone is at, at that particular moment in their own head. I, I have to say for my listeners, although if this is not the first episode they've listened to, they know I just recently took a class with you and experienced you as a teacher when I was in Lancaster. And one of the things, well, I really loved the fact that you sent out an email ahead of time. I think that's the first time I've ever had a teacher do that. <laughs> so thank you for that. Oh, and, and I would love to do that more often. It's just I'm not allowed. The last thing somebody wants to give me is the, the group's email addresses. But I would very much like to do that all the time. Some, uh, I, I learned a lot in terms of how the supply list was um, absorbed by the students. Plus, there are some things that I could put people at ease knowing about if I could just talk to them. So I would definitely recommend sending your teachers uh, when, when guilds invite them in to come and present that they get a list of emails so they can go, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you have any questions? Because I pretty much know my class is much better than the program chair does. 
and maybe there's something that I can um, assure them that it's going to be okay and don't worry about this or, hey, you might want to worry about that instead. That was very helpful, and I was one of the ones that shot you back a quick question saying, okay, now I'm not clear on this part, but it was that was very helpful. The other thing I found very helpful was that at the beginning of the class, you had several samples, as many teachers do, of, you know, here's some examples of what you're going to be working on. But you also included examples that you didn't feel personally were as successful, so that we had a chance to really compare what works and what doesn't. And so often you're only shown the one hey, here's what you're shooting for, and so you don't know mm-hmm. what the possible pitfalls are. So I, I did really appreciate that as well. Well, and that's a very nice say, way of saying that some of the samples that I brought in were just but ugly, but the, the other thing that I find helpful for students is to have them take a look at my webpage because I have a gallery on the webpage, and the gallery is uh, comprised of pictures and various groups from various classes of quilts and projects that students have made. And if you're picking fabric and you only see one example, okay, that's all right. But if you can go and see 15 or 20 or 30 examples of what other students have done, then you can go, oh, I really like that one. Or, ooh, that one, mm -mm, not for me. But it it gives you a a perspective, a place to start. And it's not that I want anybody to copy anybody else's work, but it's a good way to think, what kind of fabric do I have in my stash that would be appropriate for this book? And I know full well that many people who are taking workshops often will bring cruddy stuff because they're not entirely sure what we're doing here. And I may not like this whole thing, and I may hate her, and I'm not going to waste my good stuff. But if they see what it can turn out to be, then maybe they're more inclined to to give me the benefit of the doubt and and bring the stuff that they really, really want to work on. Just for the benefit of my listeners, I want to point out that the unsuccessful samples you brought in were the ones you said were unsuccessful. I wasn't making a judgment yes. call. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> actually, several people were like, no, I think that works great. You know, So it was kind of a personal opinion thing, too. It, it is. It is a lot. But in, in quilt making, for the most part, it, it revolves around contrast. If you can't see high enough contrast, then you lose the momentum of the block. You, you lose that visual punch to it. And that's not to say that blended quilts with low contrast are bad. They're not. But as long as, if you're trying to mimic, let me see if I can put it in the way. If you looked at the propaganda for my workshop and you saw that quilt and went, oh, that's what I want to make. I want mine to be as effective as that one. But you choose different colors. You have to know how those colors and those fabrics are going to interact with each other so that you get that same pop. Right, and I, I was pleased to know that I actually really do enjoy the way mine turned out. I haven't finished it yet, but I, I am loving it so far, so that was all very well, helpful. Well, the African fabrics, that, that was just something really crazy to work with, and that turned out so well. And I think the reason I like your piece so well is because it was different. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of variations of a lot of quilts, and I'm, I'm always drawn to something that's different. Well, I was I was definitely pushing my own personal boundaries on that one, so which is why I was so excited when I did actually <laughs> like the way it Yay. turned out. That was always, you know, that's a nice benefit to pushing yourself a little bit. Um, you know, well, what, you know, that's the only benefit because if you push yourself and it doesn't work, then you feel kind of crappy. Right. And and that that's good because it's a learning thing, and you have to realize that you're taking a risk, and risk taking is how we learn. And you have to have an ego strong enough to withstand the the little disappointments in life. Right. Following up on that, one of the things you talked about in class that I want to have my listeners hear you say this, because this was really wonderful. (laughs) You talked about the Yabbit syndrome, 
can you talk about what that Yabbit syndrome is? Oh, this is something that we do, and by we, I'm I'm grouping most of us being women. Uh, I, I think we just have this very bad tendency to show something to someone. And then as soon as they say something positive about what we've done, the first thing we need to do is point out a flaw. So they say, oh, what a gorgeous quilt. And you go, yeah, but. And then you take and point your finger at the block where the intersection didn't meet or the the one polka dot is cockeyed or or something. And we feel that either we can't accept credit or we feel embarrassed or we're supposed to be humble or for whatever reason, sometimes it's a good thing to just teach yourself to say thank you. And then keep that internal message, if you must, yeah, but you know, I didn't do it as good as I could have. And when you're learning stuff, and I'm still learning stuff in quilt making, I, every quilt is a stepping stone to somewhere else. And there is no perfect quilt. If there were, we could stop. But the, the whole point is to get better and in, to enjoy the process. But if you focus so much on the negative, then the process, the product seems not to be fun at all, and that's not good. So if we want to truly accept a compliment from somebody, thank you is the best thing to say, not, yeah, but look it over here. And and similarly, I think that teaches young girls to accept themselves and what they're doing, what they're making, what they're creating. And, and sometimes we're young girls at heart. We forget that, you know, it's okay just to accept that. What you've done is pretty good. I, I did love hearing that, and it, it just brought back to mind a recent quilt project of mine in which I lost probably three-quarters of my points in the project, and there's a reason for that, but I just lost points, and I was pointing it out to my husband, and and he said, why is this bothering you? I didn't even see it, and, and as I'm kind of working my way through my frustration, I said, because if this survives to be my great-grandkids hand-me-down heirloom, I, I want them to think I was a better quilter than and my my husband's response was, honey, by the time we have great grandkids, they won't even know what cotton fabric is. It's all going to be, you know, machine-made stuff. He said they're going to be thrilled just to have a handmade quilt. Now, you know, help me put it in perspective to say ultimately yeah. the point didn't matter. It was just, yeah. it was a fun yeah, quilt to work on. The points don't matter. The points I like matter. how you said you... Yeah, I like how you said you lost them. Like they, on their own free will, marched <laughs> They're just, and they're just gone. I and, don't know where they went. <laughs> but that's that's a good thing because creative scapegoating is important. And again, that builds up your own ego. It's not my fault. It's some other fault. It's the the room is too dark, or the sewing machine doesn't work properly, or it's the wrong thread, or the ozone layer has shifted again, or something. So if you can creatively blame something or someone else besides you as a quilt maker, then, you know, tiny cheek here, you're going to feel better about yourself. <laughs> okay, so let's push that creative scapegoating a little bit and talk about your worst quilt in the world contest. <laughs> um, this is oh. something you did, what, three years running, I believe? I did uh, in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, like, so it's almost 20 years old now. I had written a book called How Not to Make a Prize-Winning Quilt, and that actually had morphed into the lecture that you saw in Lancaster. And this is a, a teeny tiny book. Um, I picked one up on, on the shelf and set it on my desk for when you called. I don't know why I did that, but here it is. I'm holding it in my hands. Anyway, um, it's probably one of the more fun books I've ever written. It's certainly not really a how-to, but it, it traces that late bloomer I am and all the really not perfect quilts that I made. And the worst quilt in the world contest 
was a publicity stunt, basically, to promote the book. And I thought, I, I remember sitting here at my desk and thinking a parody of a quilting contest entry form would be a fun thing to do. So I, I sort of stopped what I was doing, and I wrote one. And then after writing it, I thought, dang, what if we could get some sponsors and really do this? Because everybody enters a quilt show deep in their heart. They'd love to win. I mean, who wouldn't want to win? But we say, you know, we enter it to share, and yes, we do, and yeah, but we really want to win. And with a quilt show, there are very few winners, unfortunately, and, and the rest of us go home with nothing. There, there's no there's no medal. There's no ribbon. There's no, you know, million dollars. And it's it's a shame, but, you know, it's life. It's a competition kind of thing. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you you won by losing? So here's this contest where you're looking for the absolute worst quilt, and you enter and you lose. That's fantastic because who wants to be voted the worst quilt in the world? So that was the premise of, of putting the contest together. And then once I got collecting sponsors, and, and people loved the idea, I was absolutely shocked. Nobody was more amazed than I was. And we were giving away some serious prizes. So for those people who truly did have awful, awful quilts, then they got some really cool tools and some good quilting advice so they could be a better quilter. So it was win-win for everybody. And anyone who entered, I think there was a $4.95 entry fee, and anyone who entered got a lapel pin that said, thank goodness I didn't win the worst quilt in the world. Even the ones that won something, they all got the lapel pin. People could enter anonymously so that they never had to divulge their true identity. And that was all very fun. And uh, of all the people that entered, and we did this for three years, we got a tremendous amount of publicity in the quilting world and without. Uh, one of Several of the quilts were picked up by national news services and uh, printed in newspapers across the country. There was only one complaint letter that I got. Um, where she just didn't get what was going on and thought that was a horrible thing to do, but everybody else seemed to like it. Well, I have to say, having seen the presentation and all the photos of the quilts, we're not talking about quilts that were just, you know, their weird colors or whatever. These are quilts that had real issues, and in some cases issues that occurred like after washing it that the person didn't know ahead of time, that kind of thing. So um, I actually did learn something. <laughs> As well as just having a good time um, about, you know, so, right, <laughs> be careful about what fabrics you're connecting together and, and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, do you, I mean, the fun part is obviously the main emphasis is just to have people have fun. Uh, but do you also hope that people might actually take something a little more serious away from the presentation at all? Um, from the, the worst quote in the world? I guess what I'd like them to take away is this is supposed to be an enjoyable endeavor. And one woman in particular, uh, her mother-in-law said some kind of comment to her, so when are you going to quilt it, assuming that the stitches she had quilted in were just basting stitches, they were so long. And this woman didn't quilt again for two decades. I mean, that's a horribly harsh thing to say, but then again, maybe she was extremely self-conscious about the quilt and you know, like she knew that there was something that wasn't quite right about it. But but still now we do need to be careful of what we say about other people's work. And and certainly um, if you do enter a show, and I would suggest that you do because you can learn an awful lot if the judges write critiques. You can learn how to improve. But again, 
you have to realize that it, judging is subjective, no matter how much we try to make it not so. And you are the ultimate yardstick of, of how your quilting is. Do you like the process? Do you like what you make? Good enough. It, it doesn't have to get a blue ribbon. Especially not in the worst quilt in the world <laughs> contest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and these quilts were aggressively ugly. It, like you said, <laughs> these were not just, oh, I lost my point. Oh, that color doesn't really fit in. These were just, you wonder why in the world they didn't burn them instead of finishing them. They're that bad. Well, and again, to clarify for our listeners, people submitted these. They were not nominated by others. And you also start oh, yeah. out the presentation with your own quilt. So you, you put yourself right up there as well. Yes, and, and you could not enter someone else's quilt unless they were dead. That was also in the rules. And if, if your listeners would like to look at what we're talking about, on my web page there's a section that's called Funny Stuff. And if you click on the Funny Stuff, one of the first, that pops up is the worst quilt in the world contest and many of the quilts that I showed in slide form are there with the official judges critique and uh, some really hideous close-up pictures so you can feel better about your quilting instantly and I, I will say again listeners if you ever have a chance to see this presentation live if it happens somewhere other than Lancaster again um, go it was the most entertainment I've had in a long time <laughs> we were we were laughing until tears were coming out of our eyes so it was great. The, the first part of the presentation I do fairly often, which is called How Not to Make a Prize-Winning Quilt, but I do not uh, do the worst quilt in the world part anymore. And the reason I stopped doing it is the reaction of the audience goes from absolute hysteria very quickly to just dumbfoundedness. <laughs> it's just jaws slack, eyes glaze over, and you can only absorb so much ugly. <laughs> Okay, um, the other thing you're, you're probably even better known for was the Alzheimer's Art Quilt Initiative, which you have now um, brought to a close. Do you want to just give a, a quick wrap-up of from your perspective on what you were able to accomplish through that? Okay, um, my mom had Alzheimer's, and um, she came and lived with us starting in 2001, and she died in 08. Um, in 2006, I started what came to be known as the Alzheimer's Art Quilt Initiative. And the idea was I wanted to fund research because that's the only way we're going to cure this disease. And it's woefully underfunded federally. It We just needed to get money and buy some science. So I had no idea it would take the form that it did. I learned an awful lot about myself, about how to run an organization, a nonprofit. Um, all in all, we raised over $1.1 million in the eight years that it existed. And we all, all the money that we raised was or will be shortly used to fund research. We just cut checks um, last week. One was for 80000 I think the other one was for 60000 That's a pretty amazing thing to do. My hand shakes every time we write those checks. It's just it's awe-inspiring. And this was all done through quilter power. Quilters donated their small 9-inch by 12-inch quilts. We put them up on the webpage, sold them outright, or auctioned them off on a monthly basis. And then we did very well every year at the Houston International Quilt Festival, thanks to John Flynn and Carrie Brodenhan, who made it possible for us to be there. And we, we sold just 
gobs of quilts. I think we cleared more than $75,000 last year in four and a half days. Actually, that was stats from the year before. I don't even know what it was um, in 2013. But my point being that because so many people embraced this and took it on as their own mission, we got over 15,000 quilts donated. And that, that just blows my mind. I thought when I first put it together that we would have maybe hmm, five or ten quilts a month. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> 15,000. Wow. So it's it it was a very good thing to do. I think the the science that we nurtured has has given us answers in the field. We're not anywhere near a cure yet, but we've learned more than we knew before. That is, it's really very impressive and awe-inspiring what was what you were able to accomplish. What quilters bonding together, like you said, quilter power, um, was able to accomplish. Really amazing stuff. Well, I think part of the reason it was so successful is that Alzheimer's touches so many people. Five and a half million Americans have it. Um, one in three people knows someone with Alzheimer's. And for one in ten, that person is a caregiver. If you have ever experienced a family member with this disease, it's literally impossible to forget. But it is a devastating, relentless, vile, horrible disease. And if you've had any personal experience taking care of someone with this, and watching them die bit by bit, it, it's just it's horrendous. That people, so that, that was a big chunk of it, people knew about the disease. The second part of it is that quilters have a very incredibly generous spirit. And when you look at trying to, to help out in that way, this is what we do. And having quilts that were of a manageable size, that was another thing. And, and um, as a charity, staffed entirely by volunteers. I think people have gotten a little, um, I don't know, upset is the word, but skeptical certainly of big box charities where so much money is, is going not to the mission but to the CEO. And I understand that if you that this is your job, you need to make a living. But I wanted to do this as a volunteer. I wanted every penny that we could possibly funnel into research to go in that direction. And we were probably amongst the absolutely most transparent charities I've ever heard of. We bought a paper clip. We put it on the webpage and not in accountant speak in real language so that anybody who wanted to check up on us and see where the money was coming from and where the money was going could do that without asking anybody. It was just up there. Go look. I think that those, those combinations of events, I think all of that helped to to make the AAQI something that people could relate to and something that they wanted to support. And we had just incredible support. Uh, our core volunteers took on essentially a second job. And that um, dedication was just phenomenal. And, and it was also our downfall, um, to be perfectly honest, because it's, it's a, a model that really you, you can't keep volunteering with that um, effort without getting burned out. So as a business model, it wasn't the best idea, but as something from the heart and, and something that touched a lot of people, something that did a lot of good, it was just the right, the perfect model for us. It did what it needed to do in the time it needed to do it, I think. Yeah. 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 It was wonderful. Thank you. Now that 
that has come to a close and um, you're kind of you probably now have a little more time although I think your teaching calendar is fairly full what's next for you what directions do you see next for you quilting wise etc well I, I will interrupt a little bit and say that the AQ, AQI is still ongoing we're close to the public so we're not soliciting but we still have hours and hours ahead of us this year to um, be compliant with all the states in terms of their solicitation to um, and registration procedures and we have financial forms to fill out and if it was as easy as sending like an IRS form to somebody that wouldn't be it but the paperwork is absolutely overwhelming each of the 40 some odd states that require us to report they all have a different form they all ask different things and it's literally hours and hours and hours getting that taken care of and then we need to be around so that we can monitor research we need to make sure that the people who received our money did what they were supposed to do so that we can look at their final budget and go, ah, they bought this many of that and this many of the other thing and they spent this on that, and we know where the money went because that's just as important as writing the check in the first place is to find out what did we learn from that too and did they spend it correctly. So we're still going to be in existence for at least another year or two until all the research that we're paying for right now is concluded. But in terms of what I'm going to do, Oh my gosh, uh, I I have piles and piles and piles of things that I want to go through and touch and reorganize and I'm really looking forward to that time when I can just sit and sew and sew and sew and sew. And um, as I'm as we're sitting here talking, I'm looking at my hand that is right now a, a rather ghastly shade of blue from a dyeing adventure I was in last night. Oh, yeah. You you also do some hand dyeing, but you do a, a, a very particular type of hand dyeing. Do you want to share that with the listeners? Uh, sure. Um, I started hand dyeing when I made um, oh, it was a pictorial quilt many years ago now called Neuschwanstein, and it's the uh, crazy castle built by King Ludwig of Bavaria back in the day. And I had started hand dyeing with that quilt and a couple other quilts I used my hand dyeing um, in. And we are at the end of, we hope at the end, of a horrible winter here in Michigan. I don't know, 80, 90 inches of snow, more days below zero than I can remember ever. It's just miserable. And usually it's depressing and gray during the winter. And when spring finally comes, I celebrate. And one of the things that I do is I dye my underpants. Well, I happened to mention this on a blog several years ago, and somebody commented, well, would you dye our underpants? I said, sure. Well, they set it up on the webpage, and people um, sent me their underpants. And a couple of years ago, I think I got 101 pair of underpants to dye. And, and we did, and um, I hung them out in the backyard on pine tree, a couple of pine trees so they could uh, get the sun and get the color firmly um, baked in there. And I I do this every spring. So I'm going to be writing a blog very shortly, and we will announce the Yo-Yo Sisterhood of the Traveling Panties, where you send your panties to me, and I dive in funny colors, and then I mail them back to you. So that, I can't wait for spring when I can get outside and do that. So that's going to be a, a fun thing that your listeners can start uh, participating in as well. Uh, do you only accept, like, clean new underwear in the package? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for that, yes, yes. And not only does it have to be brand new, 
you have to put your first and last name in the waistband just like you're going to camp because there is no way to match up somebody's undies with their email address. It just can't be done. Um, and, and I want to emphasize with listeners, you're sending your underwear to Ami, not to me. <laughs> not making yes. the same <laughs> offer. Um, I will be, I'll, I'll link up in the show notes uh, to this episode. I'll post a link to your newsletter, et cetera, so people on your blog so that people can pay attention to when that blessed day of spring comes finally. Yeah. And well, by the calendar, it's supposedly already here, but we still have a lot of snow on the ground and the ground is very frozen as our scooter's contribution to the yard. So <laughs> as soon as those get cleaned up, then I will be able to do my dying. Scooter, your golden retriever, who, by the way, did an excellent job answering your phone earlier in the conversation. He? <laughs> he was very fast. Whooping, so he did a good job. And he's exhausted now. He's half in and half out of his crate. Just Actually, he's snoring, I think. <laughs> well, as a, as a fellow golden retriever owner, I know that snore well. <laughs> I hear it yeah. frequently, too. Is there anything else you want to make sure our listeners know about, any upcoming engagements where they might be able to take a class or, or hear you speak? Oh, gosh. I have everything listed on the webpage um, by year. I'm going to be doing some local stuff here in the Flint area at the end of April. Um, in a week or so, I'm off to Connecticut for the Connecticut Peacemakers. Um I've got, see, Mountain Home, Arkansas, Muskegon, St. Charles, Illinois, Oscoda, Michigan, and then Chippewa in June. That's a big deal. It's a big quilt festival. And that's June 25th, or around that, that date. So I will be in, in uh, Amish land doing some presentations there. Later in the year, um, Nebraska, Michigan again, um, Illinois again, Utah. So I'm bebopping all over the place. So people should be able to find you somewhere near them at some point in the next several months. Yeah. And, you know, if, I, if I'm not in their state or in their town, then I will fly over most likely. So I often post when my flights are, and I lean out the window of the airplane and wave vigorously. So if they're looking <laughs> up, they would see me. So maybe they could hang their own hand-dyed underwear in their yard so you can see it as you fly over. <laughs> or wear it on their heads. It would be easier to identify. Uh, I can see it now, a rash of women walking around with brightly colored undies on their heads. Yes, I think that would be a wonderful image. All right. Well, again, I will um, post all sorts of links in the show notes of this episode, and I really appreciated you taking time out of your schedule to talk with me, you and Scooter both. <laughs> <laughs> it was my pleasure. I had a good time, and, and I hope uh, that the rest of you, uh, is that what you refer to your listeners, the rest of you or the rest of us or <laughs> everybody out there or whomever, uh, I hope to, to see them somewhere, sometime. Fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you so much, Ami, for being willing to put the pause button on in your schedule to talk with me and my listeners. I really, uh, you know, I really did thoroughly enjoy our conversation and all our email exchanges leading up to it and everything. Um, listeners, Ami had requested all of us to, in class, to send her pictures of our completed string star quilts, and I swear I will be able to do that soon. However, I kind of got a little bit distracted, um, so let me move right into the Sandy update. I am finally back in the basement dying, as as we say, which my husband hates it when I put it that way. I am down in my dye studio, which is in the basement. Um, got back down there kind of with a vengeance. Uh, last weekend, I had talked about the fact that I was redoing some of the gradations that I had done in Frida Anderson's class. I was redoing them here at home in a more <laughs> controlled environment, I guess. Um, 
I had some issues, as people on Twitter know, our stationary tub broke. <laughs> and I kept having floods. And it's a good thing that we have a cement floor that's painted blue because there was all sorts of blue dye water all over the floor a few times. Um, so that also kind of made some of my dye results not come out great because I was sort of rushing through the rinsing process. So I had some problems with dye migration and all that kind of thing. But um, I did post the results of that one on my blog last week. I am still working on some of that. I'm I'm in the middle of a uh, wash dry cycle of the results from this weekend's hand dyeing and um, I did another one of the gradations I did a pastel version of the same colors I used for the first set and then because I was trying to use up the rest of that set of dyes I kind of did some random combinations of things and and such so you'll be getting another blog post in a few days uh, as soon as I have time to write it up and take pictures and all that kind of good stuff of my current um, dyeing and then we had a blizzard <laughs> last sometime yesterday we started getting alerts that we were under a winter storm warning um yes it's spring welcome to western new york uh they were predicting two to four inches of snow we got 11. <laughs> i woke up this morning to 11 inches of snow and it's super heavy wet snow oh my word it would be great for making snowmen snow people um, but I decided, you know, well, silver lining. I'm not thrilled with having snow, but why don't I do some snow dyeing? Because I hadn't actually done any snow dyeing this year. Because uh, the basement, when we did have snow all the time during the winter, the basement was too darn cold. Uh, so I wasn't dyeing much at all. So this time I've gone ahead. I've got three um, bins of snow dye going in the basement now. Might do a little bit more, but that there's a lot of setup involved in snow dyeing. So I'm um, it's all about the containers <laughs> that you've got and things in order to keep the fabric out of the snow liquid, you know, the, the melted snow liquid, the water <laughs> that collects in the bottom of the basement or the basin, not the basement. We fixed that problem. The stationary tub has been repaired and it is now draining properly. Um, so in any case, I can really only do so much snow dyeing at a time because of the containers. So I've got three going and I'm really looking forward to seeing the results. One of them was the very last dregs of the dye that was already mixed, so it um, was already in water. The other two I'm using dye powders, which is what I normally do on ice dyeing. Um, so part of me is also kind of interested to see what the difference is in the results between those two, between using liquid with the snow and versus powder with the snow. Um, and then because this is a great way to explore what colors make up a dye powder because some there's some that are pure you know that the color that the dye is is the only color that's actually in there um, but most of them are blends of some sort and the best way to see it is to break the dye which you do by ice dyeing or snow dyeing it actually separates out the different colors uh, so one bin I've got going with my usual favorite go-to ice dye combination which is teal and purple because boy those break into just beautiful combinations of colors. So I've got one going with that again. And then the other one I've got going with, um, this is going to sound weird, but work with me here, Stormy Gray, Dusty Rose, and Acru, and then a little bit of Camel thrown in there <laughs> just for kicks and giggles. Because I thought it would be really cool. I'm, I'm kind of into the whole neutrals and taupey kind of thing. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to see what these all break down into and see what the end results are. Uh, so those won't actually be done melting until sometime tomorrow. Uh, so I won't get to see those results for a couple of days, but everything else I should have washed and dried and ready to post 
um, pictures of by yeah, tomorrow, Tuesday, somewhere in there. So that's what I've been spending most of my time doing is is dying. And boy, that feels good. I missed it, missed it, missed it. I love being back in the dye studio again. And I'm starting to dye in larger volumes so that hopefully maybe I could start making some things available for sale. I still can't quite figure out how I'd manage to keep up with an Etsy shop with my schedule. If anybody has any, any wisdom you want to give me, that would be great. But when I travel for a week at a time, I don't know how I could you know, ship stuff out in a timely fashion. I don't know how I can create enough inventory to even bother having an Etsy shop or whatever. Um, so anyway, that's just something that's kind of in the back of my head. I did also finally finish all the stitching required for my stupendous stitching project for Carol Ann Waugh's Craftsy class. I just have to do whatever I'm going to do with it now. Um, she, I believe, recommends mounting them to a frame I did not do this a particular size for a frame, so I think what I'd rather do is turn it into kind of a, a quilted wall hanging of some sort. I just need to figure out how I'm going to do that. Um, and it's just all about where do I, do I want quilting lines to show or not based on design? And then if I don't want them to show, you know, where can I tuck them in, that kind of thing. So that's just going to take some sitting down and looking at it and figuring it out. Um, but it wouldn't take me all that long to do once I do finish it, because even if I do want the quilting lines to show, there's not a whole lot of space left, so I'm not going to be quilting a lot, just enough to tack it down to the back. Um, so I really hope to have that done by the end of next weekend, which means you will be getting another Craftsy class review, because I've been holding off doing the full review of the class until I get the project finished. Uh, so hopefully within the next 10 days you'll be seeing that. And as I said, yes, I am still working on my string star quilt. I am still cutting strips for the borders and cutting and cutting and cutting. <laughs> it's it's going to take a lot of strips to make those borders. So I just, uh, as uh, if you recall, when I redid my quilt studio and made myself the new cutting table based on the bookshelves and all that, I'm now able to turn my computer monitor. I take it off my desk, turn it around and put it up on my cutting table and I can watch episodes of the quilt show now while I'm cutting and that's pretty much what I've been doing um, or Netflix or whatever it's it's almost like having a tv sitting on the side of my cutting table um, which oh man I love this cutting table it's got so much more space than my old one did um, I digress so that's my sandy update just lots and lots of hand dyeing um, really enjoyed the hand stitching I was doing on the stupendous stitching but I'll talk more about that when I actually review the class and you know cutting strips that's pretty much what I'm doing. So, um, I like I said, I'm going to hold off and do listener feedback until next episode because I've got a lot of it and I really want to give it, you know, space and time to breathe. Uh, so once again, I will say another thank you to Ami Sims for being willing to celebrate my fourth podcast anniversary with me. Um, thank you to all of my listeners who have kept me doing this for four years and and uh so blame yourselves i guess and uh here's for however many more years this goes on we never know thank you so much and until next time oh i'm sorry not until next time i have to tell you how to get a hold of me you can email me at sandy quilts at sandy with a quiet <laughs> Okay, it's been four years. I'm a little tired. Let me start this again. You can email me at sandyquilts at gmail.com. Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can follow me on Twitter, Pinterest, Goodreads, Flickr, all of those places. I am Sandy Quilts, Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. You can follow the blog. You can subscribe to the blog by email. You can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Flickr group. 
please do love to see your pictures. You can like the Quilting for the Rest of Us page on Facebook, and you can join the Quilting for the Rest of Us Kiva team and do good all over the world. And you will find links for all of those things at the show notes for this podcast and blog and everything else I do, www.quiltingfortherestofus.com. Now, until the next time, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. Thank you.